thank you. Please be seated. In the Phenomenology of Spirit, late, in Hegel's chapter on force and understanding, a baffling figure comes before us. It is the famous inverted world. This figure completes the dialectic of understanding. As a result of the inverted world, consciousness, the sole but protean hero of Hegel's philosophic epic, undergoes a conversion. It ceases to put truth in objects or things and instead places it in the thinking subject. My plan is to take us through Hegel's chapter on understanding with the following questions in mind. Why, for Hegel, is understanding logically unstable? Why is force its proper object? What is the inverted world, and how does it come about? What does it show us about the nature of thinking and the nature of nature? Finally, how does the inverted world bring about the great turn in the phenomenology from knowledge as the consciousness of things to knowledge as grounded in self-consciousness? Understanding, Verstand, has a range of meanings in Hegel. It refers most generally to our capacity for making distinctions, our power of analysis. In his encyclopedia, Hegel indicates the function and limit of understanding as follows. Quote, thinking as understanding stops short at the fixed determinacy and its distinctness vis-a-vis -vis other determinacies, end quote. In other words, understanding establishes fixed boundaries and stable identities. Fond of schematizing, it regards mathematics as the model of what it means to know. In the phenomenology, the archetype of Verstand is the new science inaugurated by Galileo and Descartes and brought to its peak in the force theories of Newton and Leibniz. The chapter, Force and Understanding, presents a critical reflection on this science. Hegel studied the physics of his day extensively and acknowledged its impressive achievements. But it does not for him embody absolute truth. It is not science at its highest, most complete stage. Hegel's expose in the phenomenology reveals why this is the case, why the supposedly stable principles of modern physics are ultimately unstable. Hegel's chapter is difficult, even by phenomenology standards. To guide us through its twists and turns, I have divided my presentation into six parts. The first three deal respectively with force, law, and explanation. These are related as follows. There are forces at work in nature that operate according to immutable laws. For example, the law of universal gravitation. The scientist explains nature by showing how a given phenomenon, say, a body in free fall, is an instance of a force grounded in one of these laws. Hegel's account 
preserves this familiar interweaving of force, law, and explanation, but at the same time places it in the context of a dialectical unfolding. Hegel's logic, unlike ordinary logic, proceeds genetically, like life. Concepts, stages, moments, categories, whatever we wish to call them, do not merely succeed each other or relate to each other in the manner of different aspects, but emerge out of the evolutionary process that is thought. In the chapter before us, force gives birth to law, and together these give birth to explanation, which eventually gives birth to self-consciousness. This amazing process as a whole, this labor, defines understanding. Part one, force. The phenomenology is the journey of consciousness to absolute knowing, or what Hegel calls science. We come upon understanding at a pivotal moment in this journey, at the transition from the sensuous to the intelligible. The previous shapes of consciousness are sense certainty and perception. Like all the shapes in Hegel's book, they embody certainty, a claim to know absolutely or unconditionally. Sense certainty places its absolute trust in the sensuous particular, the whatever it is that is here and now. Perception trusts the thing and its properties. Both shapes of knowing, together with their corresponding objects, prove to be self-contradictory. They negate themselves. Force is the phoenix that rises from the ashes of thinghood. It is an example of what Hegel calls determinate negation. This is negation that preserves and lifts up what is negated. Force is the proper object of understanding because it resolves the dissonance that defines the thing of perception. The thing is a one and a many. This one thing and its many properties. To save this opposition from being contradictory, perception posits another opposition. The thing is independent or for itself, and dependent or for another, that is, related to other things. In the dialectic of perception, these opposed aspects become identical. The thing is shown to be independent insofar as it is dependent, and dependent insofar as it is independent. It makes no sense, then, to regard the thing as absolutely real. A thing is what it is, not through itself alone, but only in relation to what it is not, namely, other things. How this ideality of thinghood comes about does not concern us here. The relevant point is that force solves the problem at hand, the problem of substance and relation. Things as things dissolve in their essential relation to other things. They lose their substance. Force, by contrast, is substance that is relation. It is the higher category of substantial relation, the unity of being for self and being for another. 
of independence and dependence. Let us look more carefully at what this means. Force, our new object, is not something seen or heard or felt, but only thought. It is the purely intelligible inner core of perceptible things. Force is not property, but act, the act of self-expression. In the force world, a thing does not, strictly speaking, have a property, but rather emanates what we call a property from an intense, invisible center. By analogy with language, force, in Hegel's terminology, is the utterance or externalization, the äußerung, of an inner point. Hardness, for example, is not a quiescent attribute lodged in the thing, but an act by which the thing asserts itself or makes its point. Moreover, to act is to act upon another thing. Action implies interaction. This is how force makes it possible for individual things to be what they are through their relation to other things. Their being for self is a being for another, and their being for another, a being for self. Force, Hegel tells us, is a movement. This is not movement in space, but dialectical movement, conceptual instability, or transition. Consider a metal sphere. Its hardness is one of the properties by which the sphere, at the level of perception, defined itself as an independent thing. Hardness is now to be regarded as emergent from an intensive center, a center of force. Force is the transition of a given content, in this case, hardness, from inner to outer. As Hegel stresses in an earlier version of his system, force is not cause as opposed to effect, but rather the identity of cause and effect. The intensive center of force does not produce something other than itself, but exactly itself. It is a self-realizing potential. It is like an inward thought that finds faithful expression in outward speech. Dialectical movement comes into play when we attempt to spell out precisely what is happening in the transition from inner to outer. What we find is that the act of self-expression involves negation. The hardness of the sphere as an emergent property or effect must come out of hiding, be released from mere implicitness or potency. But if it were simply released, set free, it would not be the hardness of the sphere, the expressive manifestation sprung from the intensive center of force. And so, we must conclude that as a property is affirmed or posited, it must at the same time be negated as something independent or on its own. As the property is emitted, it must remain the property of the thing, the expression of the center of force. Hegel uses the terms force proper and force expressed to distinguish the two moments involved in the action of force. Force proper refers to the intensive center, force as cause. Force expressed to force as 
there in the perceptible world, force as effect. These moments, Hegel says, are self-canceling. Force proper must negate its inwardness in order to be external or manifest. And, as we saw earlier, force expressed must negate its outwardness in order to be the expression of force proper. This self-cancellation on the part of both moments of force is what it means to say that force is a movement. We phenomenological observers see this dialectical truth in the movement of force, but understanding does not. It clings to the safety of stable distinctions and assumes that the movement from inner to outer occurs simply, that is, without any negation or self-otherness. Force can do what thinghood cannot. It is a deeper, more potent category. Why, then, does it self-destruct? To answer this question, we turn to the phenomenon of interaction, the real-world event in which force meets force. As we proceed, we must bear in mind that understanding claims not merely that there are forces at work in the world, but that force is the absolute truth of things, their abiding substance. Hegel will show, to our amazement, that, quote, the realization of force is at the same time the loss of reality, end quote. Like the thing, force will fail to be substantial. The self-annihilation of force results from what Hegel calls the play, the spiel, of two forces, active and reactive. This play is implicit in Newton's third law. To every action, there is always opposed an equal reaction. Force is spontaneous and impulsive, but not self-inciting. It must be inspired by the presence of another force in order to express itself. Hegel here borrows terms that Leibniz uses in his analysis of collision. One force solicits, the other is solicited. One is active, the other passive or reactive. This is like the human situation in which I voice my opinion, translate my inner thought into outer speech, thereby inciting you to respond with a verbal expression of your thought and opinion. Perhaps the forcefulness of my expression prompts you to an equally forceful counter-expression, an equal and opposite reaction. The play that is essential to force can be maintained as logically stable only if the difference between active and passive force, soliciting and solicited, remains clear and distinct. We must be able to say, this force is active, that one passive. Hegel proceeds to show that this is not the case. The two opposed determinations of force, solicited and soliciting, active and passive, become identical or pass into each other. Once this happens, force as the solid substance of things vanishes. It loses its status as a self-subsisting entity and becomes merely ideal, 
what Hegel calls a moment. To see how this evaporation of force as substance comes about, imagine banging your fist against a wall. When you hit the wall, the wall hits back. It reacts. At first, it seems that your fist is active and soliciting. The wall, passive and solicited. But you could not hit the wall unless at the moment of impact, the wall acted on you and solicited the hardness of your fist. This hardness is just as much solicited by that of the wall as the hardness of the wall is by that of your fist. Fist and wall have exchanged determinations, like actors who reverse their roles in mid-scene. And it is impossible to call one of them only active and the other only reactive. Each is both. Soliciting is a being solicited, and being solicited is a soliciting. Let us recapitulate the story of force. Force starts out as a mere concept in the mind of a subject who claims to know absolute truth. It is in itself, or implicit, a theoretical good intention. Then, it is put to work as the substance of things. It becomes for itself, or actual. But in the act of making itself real, it becomes evanescent and unreal. The distinction on which its reliability as substance rests becomes evanescent, becomes a play or interchange of now fluid determinations. As force leaves the stage of the solidly real, it assumes a new form. It reverts to being inward or conceptual, retreats from the world, and goes back inside the thinking subject. We may imagine this as the act in which understanding experiences the dissolution of force, internalizes what it has experienced, and then comes up with a revised perspective. As Hegel observes, force does not return to its original ideality, but advances to a new state. Force falls, but does not simply fall. Paradoxically, it falls up. In negating itself, it becomes a new and improved universal, a new object that stands over and against the thinking subject. This higher object, which force has generated, is the deeper inner of things. Part two, law. The dialectic of law will lead us to the inverted world. Law, our newly postulated absolute, will prove unstable. It will fall. This fall is more dramatic than anything we have witnessed so far in the phenomenology. It is the collapse of the very citadel of objective truth, truth that is grounded in objects. In the fall of force and the rise of law, consciousness experiences a new relation to its object, Hegel calls it a mediated relation. Understanding now, quote, looks through the mediating play of forces into the true background of things, end quote. In other words, understanding sees rest within motion, sameness within difference, form within flux. Law is the eternally abiding 
purely intelligible look or idea of the always changing world. Verstand at this point is even more recognizable as the modern scientific understanding which seeks laws of nature so that it may gaze upon change under the aspect of eternity. Our new object, law, is the imperturbable base and depth of the world. World here refers to the unstable play of forces, the role reversal of our soliciting and solicited actors. This play is appearance as opposed to law, which constitutes the world's essence. So the play is appearance, law becomes essence. Law is different from the objects we have seen so far, the sensuous this, the thing of perception, and force as individual substance. It is a world unto itself, separate from, but also governing and shining through the world of appearance. Law opens up a supersensible world set over against the sensible world. Hegel calls it an abiding beyond above the vanishing present, a jenseits or over there, as opposed to the desites, or over here. Unlike the turbulent realm of sense, this other world is restful. It is the heaven of scientific theory. This two-world thesis will be the death of understanding. As Hegel will show, the waywardness of appearance, the to and fro of change, invades theoretical heaven. The beyond will collapse into the very realm from which it was to be strictly distinguished. It will become an aspect of appearance. The certainty of understanding is that there are two worlds. The truth will be that there is only one. Intelligibility is not separate from change like a law or a platonic form, but is change. Change as dialectical logic or what Hegel calls the concept. The clue, then, to the discovery of concrete truth is not in some other world, but in this one, not in motionless being, but in unstable becoming, where opposed determinations flow into each other. This inverts our normal perspective on things, governed as that perspective is by the sober teachings of Verstand. As we think our way through the inverted world, we are inverted. The conclusions I have sketched are already present in what Hegel says just before his analysis of law. He reflects on the nature of appearance, in effect, telling us where the dialectic of understanding will end up. Understanding misunderstands appearance and the intelligible essence that supposedly governs it in another world. From the perspective of understanding, law is an eternal thing-like object that grounds and saves the appearances. But this object, the supersensible beyond, has in fact been generated by appearance. Appearance is the dialectical father, law the offspring. What understanding calls law or essence is in fact, Hegel says, appearance as appearance. Appearance as appearance. To grasp the meaning of this utterance, we must observe that appearance is not sensuous presence. 
It is neither the this of sense certainty nor the thing of perception. Appearance is process and play, flash and shining forth. It is not presence, but fleeting presence, presence that constantly cancels itself to become absence. It is becoming as the unity of coming to be and passing away. In his philosophy of nature, Hegel defines time in the following way. Time is, quote, that being which, inasmuch as it is, is not, and inasmuch as it is not, is. It is intuited becoming. Read that again. Time is the following. That being which, inasmuch as it is, is not, and inasmuch as it is not, is. It is intuited becoming. Time is appearance in its most rudimentary form. It is the same process of self-negation that we saw in the now of sense certainty. When the now negated itself to become the next now, it gave birth to universality as the now of nows, say, an hour of minutes. Appearance, through its self-negation, also begets a universal, as we have seen. This universal is law. Appearance, like time, is a process of self-transcendence, self-beyonding. The understanding erroneously treats this self-beyonding, which it has glimpsed in the self-contradictory play of force, as a beyond that is objectively there. It reifies process. But essence, here identical with the supersensible, is the intelligible truth of appearance, the truth that the play of forces has itself generated and brought to light. As Hegel puts it, quote, the supersensible is appearance as appearance. It's an astonishing thing he says. Again, he says, the supersensible is appearance as appearance. The meaning of this pivotal sentence to which I alluded earlier is that essence and appearance, inner and outer, are identical. As one commentator puts it, the essence of essence is to manifest itself. Manifestation is the manifestation of essence. Appearance, in other words, is not a low, but a high category. It is the self-otherness of essence, the instability of sensuous things that has come out into the open as their higher and deeper truth. In this revelation, appearances prove to be not something in need of being saved. Hegel's critique of the supersensible beyond recalls Plato's forms and the problem of separateness. This problem is highlighted in the dialogue Parmenides, where the old Iliadic stings young Socrates with the absurdities of his two-world theory. How is it that a form, a separate entity, often its own world, is nevertheless manifested in its sensuous instances? Why are we able to see the original in the image? Law is like a platonic form in that it is eternally self-same and purely intelligible. But it is unlike a form in being a universal that governs movements, events. Law is the eternal self-sameness 
of perpetual self-difference. Consider Galileo's law of free fall. Expressed as an equation, this is the familiar s equals one-half gt squared, where s is the distance a body traverses as it falls, g the gravitational constant, and t the time during which the falling takes place. For our purposes, however, the more revealing form is s variation sign t squared. Distance varies as the square of the time. This expresses a constant difference or otherness as opposed to a mere identity. It helps us see what Hegel means when he says that law is universal difference and the simple in the play of force. Things as such don't come into the picture. As, for Galileo, as far as Galileo's law is concerned, it makes no difference whether the falling object is a cow or a cannonball. What matters is the motion, the event. Galileo's law is the simple universal in this event. It is the perfectly general, purely intelligible form of falling. Let us now turn to the dialectic of law. Understanding has, we recall, a mediated relation to its supersensible realm of law. It looks through the medium of becoming, as through a veil, to glimpse being and truth in the unchanging forms of change. It imagines that it will in this way take hold of absolute knowing. Problems will emerge when understanding tries to explain how its universal laws fit the actual determinate content of appearances. Up to this point, law is only a good idea. This idea must now prove itself in the act of governing. Law must become actually true, or what Hegel calls for itself. To uncover the actuality of law, we turn once more to Galileo, this time to his experiments with the motion of a ball rolling down an inclined plane. Assume that we have found the law that governs this movement and have expressed it mathematically. We say, this is true, it is the law. But it isn't absolutely true. Air resistance, surface friction, the phenomenon of rolling as opposed to sliding, all come into play to qualify the law. In order for a law to be true, it must, as Hegel puts it, fill out the world of appearance. This can happen only if there are many laws that apply to a given case. Here, we have a sign of trouble to come. Law, by definition, is sheer universality. Its glory is to be above cases and particulars. But the events to which law must apply, if it is to be the actual truth, involve cases and particulars. Phenomena have a determinate content that must somehow be subsumed under law. The world is not movement in general, but this movement in these circumstances. The problem can be stated as follows. Law, though stable, is general or empty, while appearances, though shifty, are full and differentiated. To overcome this asymmetry, to unite the universal and the particular, law must be on more intimate terms with the phenomenal world, if it is to be the truth of that world. A single law, as we have seen, is not enough to fill out the appearances. 
We need many laws to prevent law from becoming an empty inner. These must be organized into one law that unifies them, a mega-law. Hegel here refers to Newton's inverse square law of attraction, which unifies the laws of planetary motion and those of ordinary mechanics. But this mega-law is, alas, the victim of its triumph over specificity. By transcending the difference among the many laws, it becomes utterly abstract. Hegel calls it the concept of law itself, that is, lawfulness, as opposed to a law. But then, what to do about all the different ways in which lawfulness manifests itself in nature? To address this problem, understanding interprets lawfulness, the pure form of law, as the inner necessity of all the different laws. This inner necessity results in a new, more abstract version of force, force as such. Earlier, force was differentiated as active and passive. Law was the simple universal. Now, force is the simple or undifferentiated, and law is the source of difference. To an example, gravity, for instance, is just plain gravity, a simple force of nature, whereas the law by which a body falls involves difference as distance traversed and time squared. So too, electricity is just plain electricity, whereas the law of electricity expresses the difference between positive and negative. The assumption at work here is that law will express the necessary action of simple forces. Hegel shows that this assumption is false. Force and law are in fact indifferent to each other, that is, fundamentally unrelated. Electricity indeed manifests itself as positive and negative, but not because of any inherent necessity. The law does not express causal connection, but rather what Hume called constant conjunction. It does not reveal the origin of difference, but simply states difference as a fact. It sidesteps the primordial act by which electrical force as such divides into its two opposite forms. The result, Hegel says, is that necessity here is only an empty word. Indifference shows up in yet another way for the scientific understanding. The very elements that the law combines in its formulas lack necessary connection with each other. Galileo's law of free fall, for instance, expresses a constant conjunction of distance and time, but it sheds no light on why these should be connected at all, let alone connected in this particular way. There is nothing in the concept of distance traversed that necessarily implies the concept of time squared, and nothing in time squared that implies distance traversed. As mathematical variables, S and T are logically indifferent to each other. They are quantitatively conjoined in a ratio, but not conceptually united in a logos. The necessity that understanding craves, we must note, would be achieved if in its worldview there were a place for inner difference, that is, the imminent self-differentiation of the absolutely simple. That would account for why electrical force necessarily, out of its own nature, divides into positive and negative. Law, in that case, would be the concept 
or dialectical truth. But understanding is no dialectician. It likes its identities neat and its distinctions restful. And so, to prevent force from becoming, in its view, compromised, understanding takes difference into itself. Necessity now acquires a new meaning. It ceases to be causality in the phenomena and becomes instead the necessity at work in the human subject's act of theorizing. Part three, explanation. We are on the threshold of the inverted world, which is a second supersensible world. Understanding will reach this extreme point of its effort once it is revealed that explanation, erklärung, is nothing more than the propounding of tautologies, differences that make no difference. Explanation here, we must note, is not scientific account giving in general, but rather, according to Hegel, a species of bad argument that regularly occurs in physical science. It is the act in which understanding propounds a law that supposedly governs an appearance, but ends up being identical to the appearance. In explanation, ground and grounded become the same. We saw earlier that force is the absolutely simple, electricity, whereas the law of force expresses a difference, positive and negative. Understanding uses explanation to bridge the gap between force and law, simplicity and difference. But its effort is sophistical. It distinguishes force and law and then, quote, condenses the law into force as the essence of the law, end quote. Hegel uses lightning to illustrate his point. Lightning occurs. It is a phenomenon. Indeed, as a flashing forth, lightning functions as the symbol for appearance as such. Understanding explains lightning by enunciating a law that supposedly expresses how the force of electricity works. Force is assumed to be simple, but the process of explaining involves positive and negative. The explanation purports to reveal the necessary ground of the phenomenon, but in fact, it just repeats what happened at the surface of the phenomenon. It says, there was a strong electrical discharge because of positive and negative electricity. This simply says all over again what lightning as a phenomenon is. It is not something new and different, but same, a tautology. Understanding posits differences, and then, once these differences disappear in the phenomenon, in this case, once the electrical charge subsides, discharge subsides, allows the differences to sink back into an undifferentiated simple force, mere electricity. A distinction is made only to be withdrawn. In other words, the distinction is merely an artifact and formality of the process of explanation. Explanation for Hegel borders on the absurd, or at least the comic. Why does electricity divide into positive and negative? Because that is its law. And why is that its law? Because electricity divides into positive and negative. When we ask understanding why something is the case, it pretends to show us some underlying ground, but in fact only repeats the appearance that prompted our question in the first place. This sleight of hand is not confined to physics. 
Why are human beings the way they are? Because of their genes. What are genes? That which makes us who we are. Or to shift the world to the world of Moliere, why does opium induce sleep? Because it has a dormitive virtue. <laughs> These are all tautologies masquerading as etiologies, accounts of cause. In the earlier version of his system, Hegel summed it up nicely. All explanation, he says, ultimately reduces to the deflating admission, that is just how it is. We might be tempted to accuse Hegel of oversimplifying explanation in order to make his case. But Hegel is right. We are surrounded by explanations that purport to reveal a law, a necessary ground for how the world works, or how the mind works, or how language and culture develop, which, when examined more closely, prove to be nothing more than tautologies. I point this out to remind us that in reading those parts of the phenomenology that are critical, that are critical of theory building, we must allow our scientific as well as our pre-scientific or natural perspective to be inverted. Hegel, we must note, inverts what we ordinarily mean by tautology. Tautology for him is not a static A equals A, but rather the dialectical movement in which a difference is posited and immediately canceled. This recalls the play of force in which active and passive were posited as different and then became identical. The movement of tautology is a turning point in the dialectic of understanding. It is the point at which the shiftiness of appearance, quote, has penetrated into the supersensible world itself, end quote. In the Platonic analogy, motion becomes part of the once restful realm of the forms. Part four, the inverted world. Who among us has not wondered, what if the world as it is, is the exact opposite of the world as it appears? What if what we call real is really nothing but a dream and dream reality? What if good people, what if good people are in themselves bad and bad people good? What if, in obedience to some perverse cosmic law, being reverses seeming, inner reverses outer? To pose such questions is to set foot on the terrain of Hegel's inverted world. The dialectic of understanding is a series of postulated, objective inners. The first was force. When force as the substance of things vanished, a new inner appeared, the restful realm of law. But law led to the sleight of hand called explanation, where differences make no difference. This movement of tautology generates another inner, the inverted world, which is the inner truth of the first supersensible world. Hegel has taken us on one long journey into the interior of appearance. But the inverted world brings us full circle, confirming the truth of La Rochefoucauld's maxim, extremes touch. The inverted world will obliterate the beyond. It will collapse the distinction between essence and appearance and make appearance the standard to which law must conform. Inversion is our new principle, according to which, quote, what is self-same repels itself from itself 
and the not-self-same is self-attractive. I'll say that again. Inversion, our new principle. According to this new principle, what is self-same repels itself from itself, and the not-self-same is self-attractive. Hegel's language of repulsion from self and attraction to other recalls the magnet, which soon emerges as the paradigm of inversion. The first thing Hegel tells us about the inverted world is that it completes the inner world opened up by understanding. We saw earlier that law failed to fill out the world of appearance. It lacked a principle of change or alteration. As an inverted world, the supersensible realm acquires this principle. It becomes an exact replica of the world we actually live in. This is the irony of the inverted world. Strange seeming at first, this world, in fact, restores what is familiar and what had been lost in the otherworldly abstractions of understanding. It lets our world be as fluid, playful, and self-contradictory as it seems. This is our perspective, not that of understanding, which clings to its abstractions and continues to think in terms of a supersensible beyond, where every restless appearance finds its restful double. The inverted world is what the world is implicitly or inwardly, what it is in itself. Hegel offers a broad range of examples. The first ones he cites are suited to the theoretical bent of understanding. Like under the law of the first supersensible world becomes unlike under that of the second. Black in the first is transposed to white in the second. The north pole of a magnet in the first world is south in the second. The oxygen pole of the voltaic pile becomes the hydrogen pole and the hydrogen the oxygen. But then Hegel goes beyond theory. Revenge on an enemy in this world turns into self-destruction in the other. Crime in the first turns into punishment, guilt into pardon, disgrace into honor. It would be highly instructive to think through all of Hegel's examples of inversion. Let us focus on one, the magnet. This remarkable object will help us make the transition from inversion as understanding represents it to the philosophic concept of inversion. From the perspective of understanding, the poles of a magnet are inverted in the sense that each pole has reference to a separately existing and opposite in itself. This in itself, the home, or in William Gilbert's phrase, the true location of the magnet's poles is the earth, the ur-magnet that orients our mini-magnets. It seems strange to regard the earth as a beyond, but this view makes sense if earth is the earth of scientific theory. That the earth is a body in no way detracts from its theoretical function as the locus of magnetic essence divorced from the things whose essence it is. In our current usage, which was also prevalent in Hegel's day, the north pole of a magnet is called north because it points to the magnetic north pole of the earth. But as Hegel argues in his philosophy of nature, it is more accurate to call it south 
since by the law of magnetism it must point to its opposite. With this in mind, we can say that each pole of our mini-magnet points to and is defined by the opposite pole of the earth magnet. North, here, has its inner truth in south, there, and south, here, has its truth in north, there. Hegel calls this approach superficial. Superficial because non-dialectical. Through its ingenious idea of inversion, understanding to its credit hits upon a great principle of nature, polar complementarity. But it fails to grasp the true meaning of this principle. Its two-world thinking gets in the way. In truth, a magnet's inversion is not to be found anywhere but in itself. The magnet is self-inverting, which is to say that it contains negativity within itself or is self-other. How do we know? Because any attempt to isolate a pole fails. If we chop off one of the poles, it simply reappears in the now smaller magnet. Pole is not a material chunk of a body, but one term of an opposition. In the Phaedo, Socrates tells an Aesop-like fable about how God, seeing that pleasure and pain were always quarreling, tied their heads together so that where the one was, the other was bound to follow. The same moral can be inferred from the magnet, where each head always entails its opposite. The magnet illustrates what is true in all cases of inversion. In its true meaning, the inverted world is not a beyond, but rather the intelligible form of the actual world. Inversion, in this sense, undoes the superstition of understanding, according to which things exist in one world, but have their intelligible essence in another. Quote, antitheses of inner and outer, of appearance and the supersensible, as of two different kinds of actuality, we no longer find here. End quote. Magnetic north, as I indicated earlier, is not south somewhere else, but right here. Quote, the North Pole, which is the in itself of the South Pole, is the North Pole actually present in the same magnet. End quote. Similarly, in the moral sphere, crime calls down on itself the law's judgment and correction, invokes its nemesis as its fulfillment, not in some other world, but right here. Crime and punishment are the inseparable poles of the moral magnet a fact well known to Dostoevsky. Moral self-inversion is at work, we must note, even when we don't get caught. Having done something wrong, we suffer the torments of conscience and punish ourselves. We strain to negate our negation. Let us sum up what we have seen so far. Understanding embraces the principle of inversion as the true inner meaning of its supersensible law, According to this principle, a given determination finds its truth in its opposite. It is the law of all determinations to be transposed into their opposites, to move. But understanding regards this shift in a static way, as mere reference to another object-like world, another substance or medium. We see what it does not, that inversion defines appearance as such, 
It is the essence of all determinations in the realm of appearance to be self-inverting, to summon their opposites in a new version of the play of force. The precise meaning of the inverted world and the corresponding critique of the supersensible beyond lead us to the metaphysical primacy of motion. Understanding treats motion or change as though it needed to be saved by transcendent principles and mathematical formulas, as though rest alone were intelligible. But motion, as the inverted world has revealed, is the intelligible as such, the concept as the unity in which opposites flow into each other. In the philosophy of nature, Hegel makes this point with respect to our friend, the magnet. Quote, for the magnet exhibits in simple, naive fashion the nature of the concept. He adds in a note, quote, if anyone thinks that thought is not present in nature, he can be shown it here in magnetism, end quote. Magnetism, as opposed to the thing we call a magnet, is a movement of poles toward and into each other. It is the logically structured fluency of opposite determinations present in a simple object. To think the inverted world then is, quote, to think pure change or think the antithesis within the antithesis itself or contradiction, end quote. I'll read that again. To think the inverted world is to think pure change or think the antithesis within the antithesis or contradiction. The inverted world, our second supersensible world, is not alongside the first but has in fact overarched the other world, as Hegel says, and has it within it. It is itself and its opposite in one unity. The two worlds at that point become one world. The inverted world, rightly understood, generates what Hegel calls inner difference. This act of imminent self-differentiation is the genuine necessity that was lacking in understanding's effort to connect force and law. The simple force of electricity divides itself into positive and negative because, as a simple force, it is inwardly tense, polarized with respect to itself. Difference isn't something tacked on as an explanatory construct, but is inherent in unity. To be one is to be self-divided, to contain rather than exclude opposition. In revisiting electrical force, Hegel applies the wisdom of the magnet. Positive and negative electricity, quote, animate each other into activity, and their being is rather to posit themselves as not being and to cancel themselves in the unity, end quote. This is our familiar play of force, which, having been constrained by static principles, and mathematical formalism now rises up against understanding to proclaim, I, in my instability, was the truth all along. I, pure change, am the essence of law. Part five, infinity and beyond. <laughs> Hegel gives inner difference an evocative name, infinity. Infinity here is not indefinite ongoingness, which Hegel calls bad infinity. 
It is neither the potential infinite of Aristotle nor those limitless mute spaces that terrified Pascal. It is rather the logical process by which opposites flow into each other. That's what that would mean. The infinity is finitude canceling itself. Infinity is transition as such. It is the self-negation of a finite determinateness. The magnet with its inseparable poles is the sensuous symbol of infinity in this precise sense of the term. Infinity sums up the dialectical movement we have already seen in tautology. It is, quote, absolute unrest of pure self-movement in which whatever is determined in one way or another is rather the opposite of this determinateness, end quote. This flow of opposites into each other inverts the perspective of understanding, which is infatuated with rest and wants to keep its terms clear and distinct. Hegel makes the striking claim that infinity, quote, has been from the start the soul of all that has gone before, end quote. It is the energy of self-negation that was implicit in all the finite shapes of consciousness that have appeared so far and will continue to appear. When one of these finite shapes self-destructs, refutes itself, it is experiencing the infinity, the self-opposition that it holds within. In suffering contradiction, it is getting in touch, so to speak, with its inner magnet. Hegel identifies infinity with what he calls the absolute concept. Infinity and concept both embody the self-differentiation of the self-identical, which for Hegel is truth. This self-differentiation appears in its purest form in Hegel's logic. Here in the phenomenology, Hegel calls infinity as concept, quote, the simple essence of life, the soul of the world, the universal blood, end quote. Infinity, he says, pulsates within itself but does not move, inwardly vibrates, yet is at rest. It is Hegel's version of the logos of Heraclitus, the fire that enlivens, pervades, consumes, and unifies all things. Life, soul, blood. These words suggest that the force world we are now transcending, the world that seemed so eventful and alive, was not really alive at all. To be sure, there was motion, but not life, vis viva, but not organic being. Understanding is prejudiced on behalf of physics. This is no doubt largely because the phenomena of physics, unlike those of biology, are readily reducible to the homogeneity of mathematical formalism, that is, equations. Life is the scandal of Verstand because the determinations of life are fluidly interconnected and defy rigid boundaries. To appreciate this fact, we have only to think of how animal organisms in their embryonic development exhibit spontaneous self-differentiation, develop their different organs and systems wondrously from within. Infinity, which has been generated by the inverted world, brings us to self-consciousness. This step had already been taken in the phenomenon of explanation, our internal movement of differentiating what is simple or self-same. 
Explaining things, Hegel observes in passing, is fun, a holiday of the mind. The reason, he says, is that in the act of explaining why the world does what it does, consciousness enjoys conversation with itself, Selbstgespräch. To explain is ultimately to enjoy the play of our own inner movement, our self-consciousness. Inversion, lots of difficult ideas here. Inversion, inner difference, infinity, explanation, all converge in self-consciousness, which now officially comes on the scene in the phenomenology. The truth of the magnet was the repulsion of the self-same and the attraction of the self-different. This truth is now fully revealed as the self. To be self-conscious, to be aware of myself as myself, is to be tautologous in Hegel's sense of the word. It is my act of generating inner difference that is immediately canceled or negated. Hegel describes self-consciousness as follows. I distinguish myself from myself, and in doing so, I am directly aware that what is distinguished from myself is not different from me. I, the self-same being, repel myself from myself, but what is posited as distinct from me or as unlike me is immediately in being so distinguished not a distinction for me. Hegel compares this movement of self-identity with the axial rotation of a sphere. As the sphere turns, it continually generates different positions in space and continually cancels them. It is constantly returning out of the self-otherness that it constantly begets. Every move away is a move toward and back home. Hegel stresses that self-consciousness was behind the drama of consciousness all along. It was the energy of self-divisiveness that was the living soul of sense certainty, perception, and understanding. Now it is revealed that just as infinity is the true inner of all objects, self-consciousness is the truth of consciousness. In other words, external things are and are true only insofar as they are and are true for a thinking subject or self. True means true for me. Part six, from the play of force to the drama of man. How does Hegel get from the paradoxes of physics to the fight for recognition with which the drama of self-consciousness begins? This will be my closing question. I begin by observing that force is already on the verge of self-consciousness. Once physics takes force as its central concern, once it identifies force with nature itself, as happens most dramatically in the physics of Boscovich, it invites a connection between the spontaneity of inanimate bodies and the inner state of human beings. Nature and human nature find their common source, their essence, in impulsiveness, or what Hobbes was the first to call conatus, striving. Force, seen in this light, is proto-will. 
If we keep in mind this connection between force and will, it becomes less surprising that Hegel's chapter on understanding begins with force and ends with self-consciousness, which for Hegel is our impulse or drive to self-affirmation. As I suggested earlier, the dialectic of understanding generates life as well as self-consciousness. Life and self-consciousness come on the scene together. Both exhibit infinity as the process of self-differentiation. But for the self, at this nascent stage of its development, the mingling of life and self-consciousness poses a problem. On the one hand, the self is aware of itself as being beyond body and finitude. To be an inwardly turned being is, in a sense, to experience myself as the absolute, a god. But I am also immersed in organic life, the necessary condition for self-awareness. I am aware of myself only because I am alive, rooted in this living body, which is the immediate object of my desire, care, and anxiety. And so, the self is burdened with a double being. It is both a transcendent or pure self, the self in its glory, and an empirical self, caught up in the mortifying contingencies of the flesh. This incarnation of inwardness, this unhappy unity of the divine and the mortal, is the contradiction that self-consciousness must somehow resolve, the riddle of its existence. In the fight for recognition, the self seeks to transcend its animality or life. Self-consciousness, Hegel says, is in and for itself, when and by the fact that it is so for another. That is, it is only as a being that is recognized." End quote. Recognition here is not blank awareness, but honor. In winning the recognition of another, I confirm the absoluteness that I experience within. This recognition is my self-recognition, my certainty of myself as absolute, made concrete, out there, really existent. I use this other individual to accomplish my goal, which is to achieve self-certainty through the negation of my self-otherness. But this other, who is also at my stage of raw self-consciousness, wants to use me for the same reason. And so there is a fight for recognition. In this fight, I seek to negate the presumed absoluteness of this other individual who confronts me. I also risk my life. I do so in order to show myself and my alter ego that I am more than an animal. I show that I am a pure self, a self worthy of being recognized as absolute. The two individual selves are thus bound together in what Hegel calls a double movement. It is double because two selves are involved and because the negation each performs on itself, it also perform performs on the other, which is itself. This reciprocal action recapitulates the dialectic of force in which the opposed determinations of active and passive, soliciting and solicited, come to be lodged in each of the separate forces. Quote, in this movement of selves, 
we see repeated the process which presented itself as the play of forces, but now repeated in consciousness. What in that process was for us is true here of the extremes themselves, end quote. In other words, self-consciousness as a collision of interacting selves is force made self-conscious. In the phenomenology, Hegel mounts a critique of force, but the poverty of force is also its potency, its impulse to develop into self-consciousness, and, after many inversions, into the mutual recognition that is spirit. Spirit, for Hegel, is the spirit of the Greek polis, the spirit of the Roman Empire, the spirit of the French monarchy, and the spirit of the German Reformation. This last, which posits the absolute testimony of the heart, sets the stage for Kant's moral worldview, conscience, and the beautiful soul. Each of these worlds is an attempt on the part of selfhood to incarnate itself so that it may know itself as the shared truth of a concrete community of selves. This communal selfhood Hegel calls the I that is we and the we that is I. What then is the dialectic of force in Hegel's phenomenology? It is the prelude to the great fugue of conceptualized history which begins with a fight for recognition and ends in absolute knowing.